Morning, everyone. I'm Tim, one of the pastors here. We'd love to meet you if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet. Special welcome to those joining us online. We miss you and we hope to see you in person as soon as you're able to rejoin us. <clears throat> hey, quick note about Tuesday, Election Day. Uh, here at North Sub, you won't find a voter guide in the lobby this morning or hear any sort of directive from the pulpit this morning on who to vote for, mainly because we don't believe we have a legitimate biblical mandate to bind your conscience to say you must vote in a certain way. Right? That said, we believe in a gospel that invades and pervades every square inch of our lives. And for Americans, that does involve participation in a representative political system. And so as such, just a word, let's live out our faith by participation in the system this week. Whether we vote or whether we purposefully don't, whether we post about it or purposefully don't, whom we vote for, whatever we do, let's do it all for the glory of God, thoughtfully and prayerfully. And one more note about unity this week. Maybe in our life groups and growth groups and in private conversations and on social media, some of us have tried to persuade each other to vote one way or the other in this midterm election. Nothing at all wrong with that. But at the end of the day, we are determined in this congregation to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. In other words, despite the fact that some of us will make different decisions on Tuesday, our bond goes far deeper than that. Our primary identity is in Christ. And so no difference of political opinion on a secondary matter is going to divide us against one another. Amen? Let's turn our attention now to matters of first importance. Let me pray. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now may the words that I say and may the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. One day I would love to see an overnight time-lapse video on the beds in the Higgins home. Like if we had baby monitors or something in every room, I think it would be entertaining because many nights almost nobody ends up in the bed that they started in. So a kid comes wandering into our bed, but now Sarah can't sleep, so she moves to guest bed, but then another kid has a bad dream and cries out, and so I go into that room to try to comfort him, but I fall asleep while I'm in there. There have definitely been nights when I've slept in four different beds over the course of the night, uh, same night. But some of you parents know that moving around from room to room in the dark can be hazardous. There are action figures, Hot Wheels cars, Previously undiscovered wet spots on the floor. Some nights it's treacherous out there. So in the, in the lead up to Halloween, I forgot one night that the boys had taken yarn and created a giant spider web in one of the rooms and that we had let them leave it out overnight because they were so proud of their creation. So just about two weeks ago at about 3 a.m. I was entangled, broke my fall about an inch from face planting on the floor. Um, but here's the thing, if we, if we were all honest with each other, some here might admit my everyday life feels like that. Like I'm constantly tripping over obstacles, getting hurt, 
I can't protect myself against the dangers I'm facing because I don't even have any idea where the next trap has been laid for me. I know there's got to be more to life, but I'm just stumbling around in darkness. Not going to ask for a show of hands, but I wonder who heard themselves maybe and hears themselves in that description. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came along and he said, I've got an answer for that problem. Uh, Would you turn with me to John chapter 8 if you haven't already? You got Bibles in your chair backs in front of you. Our fall series is well underway at this point. We've called it the one and only son and we're walking through John's gospel exploring both the signs that Jesus performed that revealed aspects of who he is and the statements Jesus made that let us in on what he's all about. So in recent weeks, we've unfolded several of the signs or miracles, and today we're on the second of seven I am statements recorded by one of Jesus' closest friends and followers named John, who had a front row seat to it all. So last week, we were in chapter 6, and we saw there in chapter 6 Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. Today we fast forward to chapter 8 where Jesus will make another claim, this time that he's the light of the world. It's likely that the events of today's passage take place during the Jewish high holiday of Sukkot, the Feast of Tents or Tabernacles or Booths. That's the setting of chapter 7. So when our passage starts with Jesus spoke to them again, you'll see that in verse 12, Jesus spoke to them again. I'm persuaded by the arguments that John's again there. Is picking up where chapter 7, verse 38 left off, namely, still at the Feast of Shelters. And Jesus is going to make another controversial statement that thrusts himself to the center of this important festival. So, with that in mind, follow along with me as I read John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. Jesus spoke to them again. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. Even if I testify about myself, Jesus replied, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I judge no one. And if I do judge, my judgment is true. Because it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it's written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Then they asked him, where is your Father? You know neither me nor my Father, Jesus answered. If you knew me, you would also know my Father. He spoke these words by the treasury while teaching in the temple, but no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. You see this passage unfolding in a six-part progression. We're just going to walk through the passage slowly with comment, and I'll leave us with a big idea at the end. It starts with, sort of out of the blue, Jesus making a claim in verse 12. Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Whatever you think about Jesus as a nice guy, a good teacher, make sure your conception of him includes this. That in a massive crowd at a major festival, 
he would publicly broadcast a claim like this about himself. It would have been a shock to everyone there. I am the light of the world. Now, what does that mean? Actually, we have a lot to go on. Even just in John's gospel itself, John has already prepared us to understand what's meant by Jesus as light of the world. For example, in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, John said, In him was life, and that life was the light of men, speaking of Jesus. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. John has established here the premise of this ongoing battle between light and darkness. And then in chapter 3, we see that the battle between light and dark is wrapped up with moral good and evil, with those in darkness intentionally avoiding the light and the uncomfortable truth that the light might reveal if they were to step into it. So then part of what happens when Jesus comes around is that things that are hidden get revealed. Hidden stuff in our hearts is now laid bare. Also hidden things about God are now seen, right? That's 118. No one's ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and at, is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. All this in, the, in fulfillment of the expressed hope of the Jewish people for centuries that the Lord, who is Israel's light, would one day send someone, a servant, in Isaiah's words, to be a light even to the Gentiles, extending salvation beyond Israel to the ends of the earth. That's Isaiah 49, 6. I will make you a light to the nations, to the Gentiles, to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And now here comes Jesus saying, I'll show you where you can find that light. Actually, that's not what he actually says, is it? What he actually says is not, I'll show you the light. He says, I am the light of the world. I'm the embodiment of that light. I am that guiding light that was prophesied for centuries with flesh on. And listen, uh, this may not be what the, the doomsday people on the radio are saying. But I think that today our world is yearning for that guiding light more than ever. Here's what I mean. I, I know worship attendance is down nationwide. I know participation in organized religion is stagnant. But we and our neighbors still seem so haunted by a sense that there's got to be more out there than just what our five senses can perceive. And so we're eating up superhero movies. We're binge-watching Stranger Things. Teenagers are using crystals and attempting to manifest different realities. Right? Our world is enchanted still by this idea, or at least the hope, that maybe there's some sort of higher power out there, something beyond this. We're just in the dark about who or what that higher power is. Listen to Jesus. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Can you imagine living the way Israel did during the Exodus in their wilderness wanderings in which they got to follow this light, this pillar of fire that led them through the desert at night to get to where they needed to be. All confusion eliminated. The simplicity of just looking to the light and following wherever it leads. Jesus says that's available to you. You can follow that light. And sure, we're free to go our own way instead of following that light. But we shouldn't be surprised when we inevitably encounter death out there in the darkness because the light is the light of life for a reason. It gives life. It's where life can be found. So question, are you walking in darkness or following the light?
Jesus extends an offer here to us of a life in which we never have to walk in darkness again. Never. Not that bad stuff won't happen to us anymore, but what if when the bad stuff comes our way, we could now see it for what it is and be able to navigate the path forward? It's not that we won't ever feel distant from God. We will. But what if when we feel distant from God, we can now see a light pointing the way back to intimate connection with him? I'm the light of the world, Jesus says. So how are the Pharisees going to respond to that claim? That's what's next. The Pharisees use his own previous words to challenge his claim. Verse 13. Take a look with me. Pharisee said to him, you're testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. The Pharisees here are drawing on Jewish law that requires two outside witnesses to establish a case on certain matters. But they're also drawing on the prior words of Jesus himself. Take a look at John 5, 31. This is Jesus speaking. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. So they've trapped him. Who are you to claim you're the light of the world, Jesus? Why should anyone believe what you're saying if you're saying it about yourself? Do they have him trapped? Next, Jesus clarifies his previous words. Verse 14. He says, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and where I'm going. In other words, Jesus is like, hey, you missed the context of my words back in chapter 5. Back then I was telling you that if I testify about myself outside the bounds of what my father has sent me to testify, then and only then would my testimony not be true. But because I don't say anything outside those bounds, I only say what my father gave me to say then even if I do testify about myself, my testimony is true. And that's the thing about light, too, isn't it? Augustine pointed this out centuries ago in reflecting on this passage. He says, you know your coat is in a dark room because the light shines on it and testifies, so to speak, to where the coat is. But you also know where the light itself is in that dark room because the light itself testifies to where it itself is, right? You see the point he's making there? Just as light is by nature self-verifying, the only way we know there's light is to see the light. Jesus has every right, actually, to testify about himself. He is the light of the world. If he is the light of the world, like he says, who is the greater entity he could possibly appeal to to establish his credibility, right? The only way to authenticate himself is by himself. Light testifying to the presence of its own light. So can I ask, who's your guide on this journey of life? As you're navigating the mess, as you're sorting through competing voices, whose light, so to speak, are you following? Who's your trail guide? Surely you have family members and co-workers and neighbors, as I do, who have told you about all sorts of TikTok influencers, and YouTube gurus, and therapists, and pop psychologists, and religious mystics, and Enneagram experts, and cable news personalities who have gained large followings offering their guidance. And don't get me wrong, plenty of that guidance may provide some genuine help, but can any of those people be our light? Think about it in terms of what Jesus says here. Why does he say his testimony is true? My testimony is true because, because I know where I came from. 
because he knows where he came from and where he's going. Who is better qualified to light our way to God than somebody who has been with God in heaven and who is one day going back there? That's what makes him able to be the light of the world. As Daniel Strange says, he can illuminate the way beyond because he's from a world beyond. If he wasn't, he wouldn't be able to. That's Daniel Strange's book I keep referring to. I'm going to keep reminding you of it every few weeks. Make Your Faith Magnetic. It walks through these seven I am statements and shows how they connect with the questions that all of our friends and neighbors are asking. Jesus can illuminate the way beyond only because he's from the world beyond. So I circle back once more to your question about who you've chosen as your guide on this journey of life. Put it this way. If they haven't been in heaven with God, how can you be confident that they can light your way there? People have built their whole lives around the words of Jordan Peterson, Joe Rogan, Elon Musk, Marie Kondo, Taylor Swift. Some have built their lives around the words of Jesus too. Are we to think that all these guides provide equal value, more or less? Only one of them has actually been where we're trying to go. Isn't he the one we want to light our way? Next, Jesus is going to turn the tables to put the Pharisees on trial. In verses 14 and 18, you probably noticed the trial language throughout this passage. From testifying to judging. But in the Gospels, when people try to put Jesus on trial, they're never quite able to pull off that gotcha moment that they're hoping for. Uh, In fact, it almost always ends up the questions get turned on them. So look at what Jesus says to the Pharisees who are questioning him. He says, but you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I judge no one. And if I do judge, my judgment is true because it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it's written, the testimony of two witnesses is true. I'm the one who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Effectively, Jesus is asking here, hey, how are you qualified to state definitive opinions about me, considering that you don't even know where I come from or where I'm going? How are you so sure that you've gotten me right, given that you have no idea where I'm from or where I'm headed? he's not done he challenges from a different angle you're judging by human standards looking at me from a merely human perspective but there's a whole realm beyond this one that you're missing which is why i judge no one at least not in the way that you judge but doesn't jesus judge he says i judge no one verse 15 but doesn't he Let's look at chapter 5, verses 26 and 27, the same gospel. Jesus says, and Father has granted him, Jesus, the right to pass judgment because he's the son of man. Jesus is about to say this in chapter 8, verse 26, I have many things to say and to judge about you. So how can Jesus say, I don't judge anybody? It has to mean in context that I don't do that kind of judging. That Jesus doesn't do the sort of judging that they do, the sort of judging that takes place by human standards. The sort of judging where you look somebody up and down and highlight all the ways that they fall short according to worldly criteria. That's how the Pharisees judge. Jesus says, no, I want no part of that. But in a different sense, Jesus does judge and will judge, as we just saw in those other verses. And that's why he immediately follows up his no judgment claim with, well, if I do judge... 
and explains the sort of judging that he does do. And he clarifies that while he does do some judging, his judging exclusively results in true judgment. And how could his judgments be anything but true, given that he's the light that shows everything to be what it truly is? How could his judgments be anything but true, given that all of his judgments are in line with those of the Father who sent him? So it turns out that even on the Pharisees' you need two witnesses line of reasoning, Jesus' bases are covered between him and his Father. Uh, They have the two witnesses who agree that he's the light of the world. That's the argument of verses 17 and 18. My Father testifies on my behalf, and I testify on my own behalf. And you've got the two that you're looking for. See what happened here? They thought they were putting Jesus on trial. He turns it. And now uh, they find themselves uh, on the stand because nobody ever has Jesus in the corner. He shows that even on their own reasoning, there's no refuting his claim to be the light of the world. And so whether the religious powers that be are ready to validate him or not, he's going to state clearly who he is. I don't know. I, I think there may be a challenge here in these four verses for those of us who have stood over Jesus and put him under a microscope. Like when we say, I'm not sure about this Jesus guy. It seems unlikely that he is who he claims to be. He doesn't quite line up with what I'd picture or prefer a savior to be. Does that sound like you? Many of us have had thoughts like that. And, and don't get me wrong, he is incredibly patient with us in that questioning that we all go through. But I think these verses also are a reminder that in the end, we'll all be the ones standing trial before him. And on that day, the question won't be whether he measured up, but rather it'll be what we did with the news of who he was. And like the Pharisees, none of us will be able to talk our way out of it squirm our way out with a clever defense. You see that in verse 19? The Pharisees end up having to admit their ignorance. Look at it, verse 19. They ask him, where is your father? You know neither me nor my father, Jesus answered. If you knew me, you would also know my father. So recap on why the Pharisees are asking this question, where's your father? They're like, Jesus, it was bad enough that you would say, that you could be one of your own two witnesses. Nobody can testify for themselves. But naming your father as your second witness, that's just as questionable because where is your father? Let's put him on the stand. Is he even around so that we can ask him about you? See why they're asking about where his father is? But by admitting that they don't know where Jesus' father is, they say more than they realize they're saying. They really don't know where his father is. And that's actually tragic because the father has been making himself known to them at this point for centuries through the prophets. So in the second half of verse 19, Jesus is like, look, I know that you don't know how to access the voice of my father who testifies on my behalf. That's been my whole point, actually. You don't know what his voice sounds like. You don't know where he is. You don't even know who I'm talking about. You don't know my father. Me or my father. If you knew me, you'd also know my father. We've all probably heard somebody say something like this about a friend of ours or an acquaintance of ours. People say, well, if if you've met him, you've met his dad. There's two peas in a pod, right? He's a spitting image of his father. 
That's the way Jesus reveals the Father. They're so similar that to see the Son is, in a very real sense, to see the Father. But what's at stake if somebody doesn't recognize the Son and thereby doesn't recognize the Father? How big a deal is this? I'm going to peek outside the bounds of our passage just for a moment to verses 23 and 24. Take a look at what Jesus says there. He says, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus claims to be, in other words, the singular light of the world. Apart from whom there's only the option to walk in darkness. And so to put the sharp point on it that Jesus seems to put on it here, our most respected family members who don't believe in him but who nevertheless live these extremely beautiful lives of moral goodness, despite appearances, Jesus' evaluation of the situation is that they're walking in darkness and will only step into the light once they see him and acknowledge him for who he is. Question. Are we interacting with the people we love as though that's the case? Like, they need to meet Jesus or else they will die in their sins, to use Jesus' words. Like their ignorance about Jesus could have eternal consequences. Are we interacting with our loved ones in that way? The message that we carry is, on one hand, an incredibly inclusive message, isn't it? That no matter how young you are, old you are, rich you are, poor you are, no matter where you live, what ethnic group you're part of, no matter how much good you've done, how much bad you've done, all you have to do is believe in him. That's it. Nothing more inclusive than that. On the flip side, like all the alternatives to Christ that exist, there's a line that's drawn somewhere, who's in and who's out, right? And in that sense, Jesus is unapologetically exclusive. It's the most inclusive sort of exclusivity that there is, right? As one pastor put it, you don't have to meet a standard of moral goodness. You don't have to perform the right rituals. Just believe, which anyone can do. But without that belief, we do die in our sins, according to Jesus. Because this free offer of salvation extended to everyone is the outworking of the plan that God had put in place before the beginning of time. We, the passage concludes like this in verse 20. God continues to superintend the timing and events of the sweep of history. Take a look at that in verse 20 with me. He spoke these words by the treasury while teaching in the temple, but no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. There are two reminders actually in this verse about how God has been orchestrating human history to point us to Jesus. One looks back and the other looks forward. The first, the backward looking one is subtle. It's in Jesus' location. John tells us he's by the treasury while teaching in the temple. That takes on significance when we remember from chapter 7 that this is the Feast of Tabernacles, when Jerusalem is lit up by torches, starting right here pretty close to the treasury at the temple. Uh, we know from Mishnah and from other sources. That gives us a fuller picture of the scene, right? That this is Jesus showing up and saying these words at the light show. Right? And while everybody's filled with the joy of remembering what God did way back when, to light Israel's way through the wilderness, back when they lived in booths or tabernacles or tents. 
Jesus stands up among the torches and yells out, I am the light of the world. That's the backward-looking reminder in this verse of God superintending events to point us to Jesus. But there's a forward-looking nod here, too, right? No one seized him because his hour had not yet come. What's Jesus' hour in John's gospel? You've seen it a couple times already in this, past, in this series. It's the cross, right? That's Jesus' hour. When he, when he goes to shed his blood as the sacrificial lamb who dies in the place of the people who deserve to die that death. It's not that hour yet. God knows what's the exact time he wants that to happen. But until it's that hour, God's not going to let anybody lay a finger on Jesus. Makes you wonder if there's another layer maybe to what Jesus had said a couple of verses back when he was saying all that about, I know where I'm going, but you don't know where I'm going. Yes, he must mean heaven on one level, but we've read John's gospel a few times through. We maybe start to wonder, does Jesus mean I'm going to heaven by way of the cross? After all, he's living his whole life with the looming awareness that it's headed to a climax on a bloody tree. So is it such a stretch that when he says, I know where I'm going, that the cross is on his mind? Listen, if you're somebody who wrestles, struggles with the exclusivity of Jesus' words where he's basically saying there's no way out of the darkness except to come to me, if that seems offensive to you, first of all, I get it, we get it. But remember, Jesus makes claims like that as he's preparing himself to be whipped, to be beaten, to be mocked, to be spat on and pierced and suffocated for those who stubbornly chose darkness over his light. In other words, for you and for me. That's the opposite of egocentric or tyrannical. Right? That's, that's a picture, the picture of self-giving love. So our big idea today is this. Let's step out of the truth-obscuring darkness and into the painfully exposing yet life-giving light of Jesus. Too many hyphens in that, but let's step out of the truth obscuring darkness and into the painfully exposing yet life-giving light of Jesus. Maybe you felt like you're stumbling blindly through life right now. You're stepping on stuff you don't even know what you're stepping on. If that's you, maybe you've been invited this morning into a first step of recognizing, hey, it's not just you. We humans are born into darkness, but there's a way out of the darkness, a way to access the God whom we're all haunted by but can't see. Jesus, who came from God and wants to light our way back to God. In fact, he is God, and so as he lights our way with his divine light, it'll be uncomfortable. It'll be uncomfortable because we'll see how cluttered things are around us. We'll see our own warts more clearly than we've ever seen them before. But that painful light will be so good for us. I don't know. Maybe somebody here is torn this morning. Maybe it feels like there's this battle being waged within you, even this very morning. Right? If so, that's because there probably is. During this in-between time between Jesus' ascension and, and his return, which one day soon will come, light and darkness are engaged in a battle. The two sides are not evenly matched, but 
There are forces on both sides vying for your soul and for mine. So if you haven't ever stepped into that light, there is a decisive moment, whether we know it or not, when it, whether we know when it was or not, but many of us here can remember stepping into the light for the very first time. It was scary. It was exhilarating. It's a little painful. But it's where life is found. And you could enjoy your first moments of that light even today. Even now, just by telling God, that's what I want. I want to step into the light, Lord. So whether today or another day, I want to make sure that you know there's no other way out of the darkness. Jesus is not a local light. He's not just the light of Jerusalem or the light of Israel. He's the light of the world. And we're all in darkness until we come to his light. If you have stepped into the light in the past, but you this morning are realizing that maybe you've slunk back into the shadows, you know, there's a reason that we all have a tendency to do that. Often it's to avoid the pain of the exposure that takes place there in the light. But this text has reminded us, I think, we can't avoid forever the pain that we're seeking to avoid. Because there's pain in the darkness, too. In the light, there's the pain of exposure. In the dark, there's the pain of stepping on stuff we can't see, getting hit by enemies we didn't know existed. And over the long haul, it's more painful to walk in the dark than it is to walk in the light. While the pain of the dark is a destructive pain, the pain of the light of Christ is a healing pain. So let's step into that light. Let me pray for us. Lord, for those who have never stepped into that light, I pray that someone would, even this morning, for the first time, decisively, leaving behind the darkness to open themselves up vulnerably to you, to say, Lord, here it is, the good, bad, and the ugly, take it, and bring me into your light where life can be found. And also for the person who's here this morning who has experienced that light but has slunk away from it, I pray that you would draw some of us back into your light, more deeply into your light, more into the center of your light, with all the pain, uh, the good pain that takes place there, help us not to be afraid of it, but help us to embrace it and the healing that comes along with those uh, wounds that you so lovingly administer to us uh, before you do heal us fully, wholly, and completely. In Jesus' name.